Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. Welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. Uh, today, I have a close friend of mine and a pretty viral guy, you know, uh, <laughs> Kevin, Al- Kevin Alter. You know, um, Kevin Alter runs The Addict's Diary. Um, it's a Facebook page. You can ch- check it out, The Addict's Diary. He's got a huge following. How many f- followers do you have now? I mean, I don't really keep track, but I think it's like 865,310. <laughs> it's not a million yet? No, not a million. All right, cool. Yeah, so I've known you for five years. I've seen like your entire growth. Um, you know, like I always knew how good you were online because there are times where like, you know, you're you're sending me posts all the time. I see it all the time. And there are some times where I've seen something and been like, damn, that's really good. Like, <laughs> like that shit was really well written. Thank and I, I think I'm a good writer. Like I always thought I was a really good writer or whatever, but like my shit's not like yours. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you're really, really good at writing. And um, you also don't don't come across as someone that's good at write, at writing because you're pretty much like I'll also punch you in the fucking face too. <laughs> so like a lot of people don't see that other side of you. But like it's interesting to like know who you are in real life and to also see like your social media presence and see how how far you've come in like the last five years. Um, but it wasn't until I heard you speak at a high school that really I got to see what you really do. So when we went to that high school, I remember it was the first time I've ever heard you share your story. And when you shared your story. That was a big school. Yeah, bro, that was a big school. I got to speak too, it was cool. So I remember like when we did that, I remember being like, damn, like Kevin's good. I remember I got in the car and called people and like, bro, I just heard Kevin Alter speak. Like he's fucking really good. Yeah, thank you. You know what, man? Like uh, I got clean at a young age, but I did drugs at a young age. Like um, I think back, like, dude, I wish someone had came and talked to me, you know? Yeah. What's so interesting for me is like a couple times you've told me like throughout the years, like, man, you're like living my dream. Mm-hmm. And to me, like, not to not to sound like a, you know, cliche or whatever, but to me, like you were always living my dream. Like mm-hmm. my biggest regret is that I didn't get clean younger mm-hmm. because by the time I got clean, I was already 28. And then there was no time to like waste. Yeah. And you know what? Like I tell people all the time, like, you know, bro, you'll never regret getting clean. You'll only regret not doing it sooner. Bro, if you got clean, I feel like I should have got clean earlier. I'm like, damn, imagine if I got clean at 12, I'd be killing it right now. (laughs) Right. So like, I feel like everyone always feels like they wish they would have got clean earlier. I envy what you do a lot, you know, just because it's so cool. Like I've been sharing my story for years. And yeah, I get like a hundred likes maybe on a post or something like, bro, I've seen you share something uh, like that one post that you had that went viral. The one about uh, like, you know, you see, you see heroin. Yeah. I see low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That one was like, that one got ins- a couple million shares. Yeah, That was millions of shares. And it was like, so like simply written and so good. I was just like, damn. The funniest thing about that one is I was so uh, like new into my recovery and so new into like becoming a member of society that 
so many people online had stolen it from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were mad. Yeah, I was mad. Like, <laughs> Some, I was mad as fuck, dude. Somebody would steal it and he'd be like, yo, this is my post. <laughs> yeah. I'll fuck you up. I wrote this. I used to, I, I had to message like probably like, I didn't even have a public page then. Mm-hmm. I had to message like seven or eight recovery Facebook pages. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I was just completely lying because I didn't have the financial backing to do any of this. But I just said, hey, I just want to, you know, you could take the post down now or my attorneys are drafting up the papers. We just need an address to sign have any attorneys. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, like nine months clean or yeah, something. Yeah. I didn't have any of that. Yeah. I mean, people are going to steal shit online. You know, I remember when you would tell me like, bro, this person stole my post. It's like everything you see online was stolen a thousand times before you even seen it, you know, but but I guess like for you, it's like, yeah, but I actually wrote this one, you know? Right. And right. like, you know, not for nothing, it was also other like recovery advocate pages that knew you wrote it. Yeah. That did that, which yeah. I think was like the worst part. It's actually really died down now. Cause what I did to people for like six months last year was like, okay, I'm the biggest page now. Mm-hmm. So I'm just gonna steal everybody's stuff and put it on there. And then mm-hmm. I, so if you stole my stuff in the past, I stole your stuff for like a week straight and my, <laughs> our performance would do way better than yours. And yeah. then everybody stopped stealing my stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> but nothing like the difference was like, I never stole anything that was like originally written. It was all like memes and things like that. I would just yeah, repur- like repurpose someone them. wrote something and put like a sunset background on it yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So, um, you know, you got a, a good story. You know, I, I see people comment on your stuff like, Oh, how are you a drug addict with all those nice teeth? (laughs) (laughs) My teeth are are the the never-ending question about my teeth. You know, they want to know. (laughs) (laughs) If you like really use drugs, then you would know the answer to the question. Of course. Or if you have an IQ over like 75. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Dr. Saris. Yeah. Yeah, bro, the dentist. Yeah, bro. I I, I knew Kevin Alter before the teeth, bro. (laughs) Yeah. Let's start with uh, your story. Where are you from? So I grew up in, in Long Island, New York, in Massapequa Park. I had a older brother and older sister. I was the youngest of three. And I always like to say when I speak that, you know, my parents, uh, they did the best they could. You know, my dad was a New York City fireman, and my mom worked for the town at the water district. And, you know, we, we weren't rich. We, we certainly weren't poor. We did, we did everything together vacations down in Florida. I can remember driving, you know, from New York to Florida and took a lot of vacations to Myrtle Beach. And my parents were, you know, they were around, like they were, they were present, you know, all of our sports games, uh, back to school night, spring exhibit, all that stuff. My parents were there, you know, and they, uh, they, my father held us to a certain standard. You know, I think when you say that, I have this online persona and then I can also like scare the living shit out of people. My father instilled that in me. That's just, that's just how I am. Um, just being raised by him. And you know, it's just, uh, yeah, Lance will fuck you up. (laughs) (laughs) We're not, we're not trying to scare anyone. It's Mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, my father is his, his side of the family is German and everything, you know, has a place and belongs somewhere. And they're very, um, hard workers and highly intelligent and highly disciplined people. Yeah, my father's the same way. And, um, you know, from, from my upbringing, like, my father's very OCD. Like, if you turned his toothbrush the other way, he'd be like, who the fuck touched my toothbrush? Yeah. Like, you don't even think about touching yeah, my dad's toothbrush. You don't even think <laughs> about <laughs> fucking go near it. So when I got clean, I started to realize, like, wow, imagine how difficult it would be for this guy to have his son out of control. To right. watch, 
like something he cares about. Like that's a toothbrush, you know? Imagine what he goes through knowing that like, you know, his son is just off the chain. Yeah, I I try not to even think about that because it still kind of pains me now. Mm-hmm. But my my dad will tell me about it like every yeah. chance he gets. And it's 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 touching to hear a six foot five gorilla shaped man like my father say, like, hey, you know, I'm proud of you. And like there were so many nights, like you don't you don't even know how many nights I sat up here in this home, like wondering if someone was gonna come knock on the door saying that they found my son. Mm-hmm. So how did that start? Like, um, you know, when did it become like social using to like hardcore using? So it started in in high school. I I never touched a drug before before my first day of tenth uh, grade. I never saw you know like everybody else. I started with, with smoking weed. You know, in New York, we, uh, we we used to buy Dutch Masters and bust the guts out of them and take the tobacco out and re roll it with mm-hmm. uh, with weed. And back then, it was not like the weed they have now. Like if you had hydro, like that was like insane. You know, and um, it was just like my first day of school. And I like to say like when I when I speak that. I believe that in life, like we have two true emotions and that's, uh, you know, love and fear. And um, my earliest memory of love was the, the time I spent with my grandmother. She raised me. She was a Holocaust survivor and very, um, very loving woman, you know, hugs, kisses, food, very easy to talk to. And my, both my parents worked full time when I was a kid. So I spent a lot of time with grandma. And my earliest memory of fear would be like when I did something wrong, knowing that my dad was coming home from work and just be terrified of like what response I was going to get from him. Mm-hmm. When I got to Massapequa High School that first day at 16 years old, looking back, I was riddled with fear. What was 16-year-old Kev like? I was skinny. I had just got my braces off. I was definitely not like as far into puberty as like the other kids my age. I'm going to speak how I would like would normally speak and not do this like a school session. Like motherfuckers were coming in with like full beards and shit. And I had like probably like two hair on my nuts. You know, like I just started hip puberty and like I was skinny and uncomfortable in my own skin and, and nervous. You know, I, I think I remember changing my outfit like three or four times before that day. And I was so grateful I got my braces off like that summer before school started. And Yeah, that first day outfit is pretty important as a kid. Yeah. Yeah, like, and really? I went all out, bro. I like I went, I went to Express. Like I got some jeans. You were wearing like, Express. Yeah, bro. It was like that was like balling for me then, and yeah. still now. You know, I, yeah. I never really cared a whole lot about clothes and things <laughs> like that. But back then, um, yeah, I was just super uncomfortable with my own skin. And like the first day of school, we had an open campus, and I saw people getting in their cars and going separate ways. And someone someone offered me to smoke, and I you know, and I I got in the car with the upperclassmen, and I. They rolled up a blunt, and I hit that blunt, and I just remember being, like, really, really high. People say that you don't get high the first time you smoke weed. I got really fucking high. That's because you don't know. That's because people don't know how to inhale and smoke. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was already smoking cigarettes, so, like, I knew the concept of inhaling and exhaling, you know. Yeah, when I inhaled it, I was high. Mm-hmm. And I was, like, not passing down, like, a hit when it came back around to me. And I think, like, the College Dropout album had just come out, and I remember that playing. And I was just <laughs> like, wow, what is going on right now? And I went back into the school and always being like blonde hair, blue eyed. When I'm high on narcotics, it's it's so obvious that I'm high. Like mm-hmm. either like if I'm on opiates, like my pupils like are non-existent. If I smoke weed, it looks like, you know, I have two Christmas ornaments mm-hmm. for eyeballs. And I walk back in and everyone knew I was stoned. And they were like, oh my God, you're stoned. And I wasn't the only kid that was stoned, but I kind of like adapted to that identity right away. 
like that low self-esteem, that belief that like I'm a piece of shit. Like I just absorbed that. And it was like no longer the kid who got straight A's or played lacrosse or basketball. It's just like, yeah, I'm the pothead now. And I smoked weed like every day after that because like when I smoked weed, I didn't have that feeling of like, how did my clothes look? Or like, what did, what did I just say? Was that funny? Like, is she looking at me the wrong way? Or, you know, am I going to be good enough to make the team this year? Like, I didn't give a fuck. I just wanted to be stoned. And so mm -hmm. I smoked weed every day and I quickly got introduced to other drugs. At that time, Oxycontin was like ripping through uh, my high school and, and my state, like yours, like everywhere in this country. And I remember friends of mine were, were taking that and trying that. And it was not uncommon to, to like look around my high school and see just like a bunch of kids nodding out or throwing up because they were so high on opiates that their body was rejecting it or scratching their leg off in physics class. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't partake in that. I really didn't. I didn't jump in. The first, the first drug that I ever tried that I liked other than weed was, I think later on in that uh, sophomore year, me and a couple of friends of mine, we got our first bag of cocaine. It was, it was an eight ball of cocaine. You know, for, for, for those of you listeners who have never done cocaine, it's like three and a half grams. And there was, there was four of us and it was like 150 bucks. And my friend's parents went out for the night. So we got an eight ball of cocaine and a bunch of beers and, and we had the house to ourselves. And I snorted my first line. And when that, when that shit hit my, hit my bloodstream, I just looked at my friend. I was like, yo, I'm going to need that drug dealer's phone number. Like, cause I didn't have the connect and I, I fucking loved it. I loved it. And we finished that eight ball and we, we, uh, around like midnight and, I didn't want to let the, let the high go. I didn't want to come down. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like. Yeah, I always fucking. say that's like the difference between like me and other people is that everyone else is like, all right, well, I'm going to go home. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I didn't drink a single beer. <laughs> yeah. I didn't drink a single beer. I was just I was sniffing lines, smoking parliament lights, waiting for my next line. And, you know, so I said, all right, I'm going home, guys. And I called the drug dealer and I went over there. And I got my second eight ball. And so like my first experience with cocaine was we started at Friday night at eight. I snorted cocaine through Friday night into Saturday morning, through Saturday morning into Saturday night, through Saturday night into Sunday morning, through Sunday morning into Sunday night. And I walked into Massapequa High School at 16 years old with a feeling that I would come to know most of my life, which was a feeling of being strung out and the feeling of being a junkie. And what that means is I hadn't done anything from Friday to Monday except snort cocaine. I hadn't eaten any meals. I hadn't drank any water. I hadn't done anything, showered. I mean, I came into that school and I just felt like that crash finally happened. And it was like, oh my God, you know, it was like this high of dopamines and endorphins to like psh, nothing. Yeah, that come down is like uh, un indescribable. Yeah. And I would do, I would do pretty much anything to avoid that come down aside from like selling my body like mm -hmm. I've seen other people do. Like I'll rob, I'll steal, I'll manipulate. I would do anything to, to get another bag of cocaine. And so what happened for me being, I had those parents that I just described is that they started to notice like the change in me. I was skinny already, but then I started to drop even more weight and my parents started drug testing me. They took the door off the hinges yeah, yeah, yeah. and I had like a curtain. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it was like two tests and you know, my parents were like, Hey, we got to do something. You got to go to, you got to go to rehab. And back then, man, this is 2004. There was no rehabs especially for adolescent yeah but there was just like we were so lost and there was so much stigma they were so embarrassed of yeah my parents were like oh oh we don't want to send him to any place that's going to be on his record yeah <laughs> yeah my dad was super concerned with yeah. like my record and i was like you know what I, i'm probably not going to work for the cia you know 
I'm probably not going to be a doctor dad. Like, I don't think I'm that. And that stuff, honestly, yeah. like it's, I know plenty of police officers and things like that, that have gone to treatment or been arrested. And my dad had this perception and he, it was uh, like, we lived in a fear-based home and my dad didn't even intend to do it, but that's how it was. And so we found my first treatment program in the phone book, as crazy as that sounds. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I, I was mixed in with the adults. That's how they did it back then. In hindsight, like I learned more bad than good. I wasn't prepared for, I didn't understand what I was supposed to be doing there. The only thing that I enjoyed was when guys like you would come in and speak mm -hmm. and I found them relatable and I, I loved their story. But at the same time, bro, I was fucking 16 and like, I, w I wasn't able to grasp it like, like you were. Yeah. I think what happened to me is that I had experienced, I had experienced crack addiction and I had experienced opiate addiction by the time I was 17. Yeah. So when they were talking about crack, I was relating. And when they were talking about opiates, I was relating. Whereas someone who's only doing a drug like cocaine, it's easy to be like, oh, well, I only do powder. Right. I don't even know what opiates are. You right. Know? You know, and they sent me, you know, I, they told me like the stuff that we, we tell people like when they go to a treatment program, like, hey, change people, places and things, go to meetings, get a sponsor. And all I really heard was like, I can't do cocaine. Mm -hmm. You know, I was going back to be a senior at Massapequa High School. I was going to lay low for a bit. But I really didn't have any intention of staying clean. Yeah, it's almost like when people get DUIs, they don't tell you to never drink again. They just say, hey, don't drink and drive. <laughs> yeah, don't drink and drive. <laughs> they don't tell people, hey, you should stop drinking. They're like, hey, call a taxi. Right. You know, so it's kind of like how people are when the first couple of times they get arrested with drugs. It's like, hey, if you're going to do coke, do it at home. Right. You know? And my parents kind of bought into it, too. They didn't really understand that it was a lifelong problem either. Because I remember going to meetings for a little bit and my dad was like, and my mom. One point they were like, hey, how many of these meetings are you going to go to? Like, you know, you are who you hang out with, Kevin. <laughs> I was like thinking in my head, like, are you saying I don't got to go? Yeah. But all I really was doing was uh, after a while was I was just saying I was going to meetings and I was out there getting high. And mm -hmm. so like what I got from my first treatment program is I started to sneak around. I realized that I was an addict. I understood that. I understood that from the first time I got high, that I was, I was going to be a real deal drug addict. Like I was like the type of kid that always watched movies and stuff and like was like rooting for the bad guy and thought that like the drug scenes was like super, that stuff fantasy, I, you know. It was, yeah, it was, I remember like, watching like Paid in Full and like Cocaine Cowboys. And blow. Blow and all these movies. Yeah, dude, <laughs> Blow used to like fucking blow my mind. I'd yeah. be like watching that like, oh my God, why can't I be him? Like what happened? Uh -huh. <laughs> and then at the end of the movie, they all die and go to jail. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm like hoping that that doesn't happen to them like while watching the movie. I was yeah. a fucking idiot, mm -hmm. just a complete idiot. But like that, if that was my story, like I probably wouldn't be here and be sitting on this podcast. Like things settled down for me for a little bit. I always did well in school. So I got an academic scholarship to college. And, but like after a while, like my track record is I'll let things get better. You know, I'll, I'll behave for a bit and then I destroy it in like a weekend. Mm -hmm. And so after my first semester of college, my parents had noticed that I was withdrawing a lot of money from my account because they had been opening my, my bank statements and things like that, that were getting mailed to the house and after my first semester of college on Christmas break, Christmas Christmas morning, actually, my my parents must have been so upset and so pissed in hindsight. But they they walked into my bedroom and they handed me a bag and they said, "Hey, you gotta you gotta leave. You can't live here anymore. You're not going back to school. Like we're done. And uh, call us when you get when you get your life together." And um, oh man, was I I was I was partly relieved because now I could use in peace, but I was also. I was not willing to look at my role in things and I was super immature and 
what I did was I went to my grandmother's house and she was an easier, softer target to use and abuse. And my grandmother gave me two stipulations for living there. The first one was that I had to enroll in a local college by the time the semester started, which I did. And the second was that I had to like start going to NA meetings again. Mm-hmm. And I walked into the NA meeting and this girl that I went to high school with, one of those people that had been sniffing Oxycontin and things like that. I mean, she was strung out like bad. You know, she was thin as a rail and they, they have like hour and a half long meetings in New York, or at least they did back then. And uh, there was a cigarette break and she came up to me at the cigarette break and she, she told me that, uh, you know, she had become a heroin addict. She asked me what I was doing there and I said, you know, I can't stop sniffing cocaine. And she was like, dude, all you got to do is like when you hit like the amount you want to hit, like you just sniff a bag of dope and you can go to sleep. And I don't know why, man. Like I'm a really smart guy, but like that, <laughs> that sounded like sense. a fucking solution to me. I was like, oh, shit. Okay, problem solved. Bro, the first time I smoked crack, this guy said, it's just like Coke, but you can eat on it and sleep on it. I said, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> he goes, he goes, and get this, there's no come down. I was like, what? Yeah, right. You know, and like, and then when I got someone else to do it, you know, when I said to them, I was like, bro, it's just like Coke, but you can eat on it and sleep on it. And there's no come down. <laughs> and this kid hit it and he was like, you lying son of a bitch, there's a come down. <laughs> yeah, so, the come down only gets worse. Yeah. Yeah, I left with her, and I, I sniffed my first bag of dope that night. And um, I sniffed dope with her, like, two or three times. There was no, like, relationship with us other than, like, she had the heroin dealer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, the third the third night or so, we used to go into this heroin dealer's apartment. He was uh, another kid from my town, you know, like a year or two older than us. Like, they just slid a syringe across the table. They were like, yo, you're wasting it. And I, I always say when I speak, like, I don't remember the first girl I ever kissed. I don't remember the first home run I ever hit. I don't remember the last thing I said to my grandmother before she passed away. But I'll never forget, like, when they tied up my arm and I watched the syringe fill up with blood and I watched them slam that first bag of heroin down into my veins because the only thought that I would have for the next 10 years is I just wanted one more fucking bag of heroin. And that high, that first high was like, I was high for like probably like 36 hours off that bag. You know, I'm from New York. Like, we, we had good dope back then. They got fentanyl bullshit now or whatever mm-hmm. I hear, but... Like back then, that was like really good heroin, and that was like straight out, straight from Bushwick and Brooklyn, and and man, I was fucking high, like I was really high, and and nothing mattered. I didn't give a fuck that like my parents kicked me out. I didn't give a fuck that like I was living with my grandmother. I didn't give a fuck how I looked or any of that shit. Like all like my main focus became heroin, and it's so fucked up because like a week or two later, like because of like my parents, the way they raised me, and like I knew that like what I was doing was wrong. So I made, I made a conscious decision just to stop and I stopped and like, it just so happened that when I stopped, I got sick and I thought that I had the flu, but when you're 18, you kick a dope habit in like 48 hours. You're young, you're strong, your body, you know, it re-energizes and bounces back. And you're not really sure what's going on. So you're just like, no, but here's the thing, right? I remember I stopped and then, cause I had no money and it was tough to manage and after like three or four days, like I got my hands on like a $20 bill or something, which was like four bags of heroin at that time. And I called my boy and he's like, where you been? And I'm like, ah, oh, dude, I, you know, I, I was going to give it up. And cause I could see this like becoming a problem. I like it too much. I said, but I, I think I had like the flu or something because I just been like laying on the couch for the last few days. And he's like, yo, you didn't have the fucking flu. You were dope sick. And he changed my whole life when he said that. Because my whole life became now about avoiding being dope sick. Mm -hmm. And so 
after like right after that like it was no longer about like buying dope locally like i wanted to connect in brooklyn and you know i was driving into brooklyn to get my own dope and middlemaning it to these other kids and it kind of just like spread throughout where i was from like just a bunch of like nypd fdny wall street workers kids all became heroin addicts mm -hmm. and looking back on it like we didn't realize like what we were involved in i remember us sitting yeah because when you're in this uh epidemic you don't realize that you're in it when no. you're in it you like you don't understand that you're a part of like this thing that's tsunami in the country right now it's just destroying people's lives you're just like damn bro i found this like yeah. you just think like your little town or whatever is like the one getting affected by it. you have no idea that you're a part of this giant it was everywhere thing. it was everywhere everybody i knew was a heroin addict mm -hmm. and i can remember like sitting in the car with my friends like in the middle of like this shithole neighborhood in brooklyn where we didn't belong and we all just did our bags of dope and my friend being like, yeah, man, in a couple of years, you know, like, we'll all be, like, married and, like, uh, you know, have, like, good jobs and shit. Like, we really believed that, like, it was, like, a fucking phase. That, like, we were going to be okay. And everybody else in that car is dead. Everybody I was in the car with that day is dead. And so, you know, I, I very quickly started to experience the consequences of addiction at, at a young age. You know, I was going into like very bad neighborhoods to buy my heroin. So I was constantly getting locked up by the narcotics cops and, and, and the NYPD and um, spent a lot of time in central booking, like detoxing in Queens. I always got arrested in Queens. <laughs> you know, Queens, like over there in Jamaica, in Jamaica, like they, they fucking caught me every time. I was, probably, I was like the only white person there. Other <laughs> yeah, than that. I was like, like, how are you even driving in there? <laughs> yeah. So I started to adapt. Like I stopped driving in. I started like taking mass transit and then uh, cabs and stuff. And, but I was always getting arrested and, uh, very quickly. I, in my, in my addiction, like I experienced homelessness. I think I was, uh, I think I was 19 the first time I became homeless and, uh, like being homeless to me at, at first was like, well, whatever, you know, like everybody, like I was, I always lived at this train station, Jamaica train station in Queens there. And so where I'm from in Long Island is east. And then you got to go through, you got to head west to get to Manhattan. And Jamaica is, is midway between that. And it's a, it's a mass transit station there. People change trains there and stuff from the Long Island Railroad or the subways, that, which is below ground. And everybody was always pissed off. And so I didn't really give a fuck. I, I figured like, you know, like this isn't that bad, except... Because, like, everybody that lives in Long Island, or not everybody, but a lot of people work in Manhattan, and then you see them on their commute to work, and they're pissed off. And you see them on their commute home at the train station, they're pissed off, too, because, like, mm -hmm. they just got done working. But the first time it really hit me that, like, I was fucking, I was fucking up bad is, like, the first Christmas that I spent there. Because on Christmas, you would see all these people from, from New York City, like, head into Long Island to see their families, and everybody was in a good mood, and they were, like had presents and food and vice versa. People were heading the other way. And like, all I could think of was like, I really hope that this, that booby, my, my dope dealer, like, I hope he answers the phone because I'm going to be sick. And that's when it like first hit me like, man, I'm, you know, 
this shit isn't for me, you know? Cause I, I mean, I, I was like really homeless. It wasn't like just like out there for a couple of days. You know, mm -hmm. I was, I was out there for a long time. And thank God when I was like uh, 24, I think, um, President Obama changed the, the rule with insurance. Well, you could be on your parents' insurance for 26. Yeah, you could. And, and my mom, uh, <clears throat> my mom called me and, well, I should backtrack a little bit. I had, I had other, I had a career in there for a little bit. I got hired by the utility company in New York city. I worked for Con Edison and, um, I was, I just couldn't stop using like everything I had, uh, I lost to drugs. So after I lost that job, the insurance rules had changed. You know, he came out with the affordable care act. And, and so now you, uh, you couldn't be biased against preexisting conditions and you didn't have to be a full-time student to be on your parents' insurance. And so my mom, she added me back to her insurance and it was, uh, I had a friend that was down in Florida already and he, he worked at this facility in, in North Miami there. And my mom called me one day and she's like, hey, I didn't tell you this, but I added you back on my insurance. And like, you know, I talked to Mike and, and Mike is doing really well. He lives down there in North Miami or Hollywood now in Hollywood, Florida. And there's this treatment center. Do you want to go? And I was like, yep. Like I never, I never was like anti going to treatment. <laughs> like I had been to a lot of treatment centers when I was at the mm -hmm. train station and things like that, but I, I was on Medicaid. So the treatment options weren't, were very different than what I was mm -hmm. going to get down in Florida. And I got, I got on the train. I got, went to Massapequa and my mom had a backpack and my aunt drove me to the train station and I got on a, I got on an airplane and I, I, I came down here and it's, uh, was the beginning of like me really being introduced to recovery. Like it was the first time that I met people like you that were like 20 something years old and, and they had like years clean, you know, and, and I, uh, I was amazed and the treatment center was awesome. It's, it's, it's no longer open, but you know, this guy, John Giordano had this place, uh, G and G holistics and he mm -hmm. did like a lot of really cool stuff there. Yeah. It's and like super holistic diet. Su yeah. All sorts of things. Like there was no sugar and there was like, like he had a whole like medical spa for like you know, you could do a, like a lot of things there. And he had an awesome team of therapists. Everybody mm -hmm. had like a PhD. It was like, it was amazing, especially coming from Medicaid, Medicaid detox, hospital states, living yeah. in the train station and things like that. And, and so it was the first time that I tried, you know, I went to the halfway house, the sober living afterwards. They had a nice sober living. Uh, they didn't have, this other guy had it over there in Sky Lake and we had a pool and, uh, and I was going to meetings, I was doing the deal and I was doing what I was supposed to do. And then I met, you know, I met a, a girl in, uh, who was in the rooms and we were like the worst thing that happened to one another. And so what ended up happening is like, anytime I was clean, she was doing bad. And anytime she was clean, I was doing bad. And we kind of became like this, these running buddies. We became running buddies. And when I lived down here, that's when things started to get, uh, you know, a lot worse for me because I had no one watching me now. There was no family, nothing. And I, down here, just using was different. It was very different. <laughs> and, and down here, um, at least back then, the only place to buy heroin was in Overtown. And the other really fucked up thing that happened to me was I got introduced to shooting cocaine. And I, it was, I had arrived. You know, that was, that was my thing. Mm -hmm. And I would shoot cocaine all day long every 10 minutes yeah so people that don't know so like when you shoot heroin you might inject like five six seven times with shooting coke you're injecting like 150 times right yeah and like when you see people covered in 
when they have track marks everywhere, they they're, it's coke. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very. It's not supposed. It's not designed to be shot. Yeah, like heroin. Yeah, heroin once, twice, three, four times a day, whatever. But cocaine, you're doing that three, four times in in a ten minute span. Mm-hmm. I always tell people it's it's the best and worst thing that ever happened to me in one, and uh, it just completely ruined my life. It 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 broke my spirit. In my opinion, back then heroin was always a very maintainable drug. Right, you you still have your wits about you. You day in day out, you you can work all day on it and yeah. then do more later. And yeah, and like you you don't really have much of a choice, and you're gonna get that heroin one way or the other, or you're gonna be very very sick. But with cocaine, it's like you know I would just find myself in places like that I shouldn't be shooting cocaine, like shooting cocaine with like no shirt off, like profusely sweating and like talking and like not making much sense. And then I started to get like to the paranoid stage, and I just remember being like so fucking hopeless that. I was going to die in like one of these fucking $60 a night motel rooms because I would feel my heart coming out of my chest. I'm talking, Brian, I was shooting cocaine for like three, four days straight, no sleep. I mean, such a paranoid freak that I would have to go across the street to get a bottle of water and I would have my, my, my little key for the room and I would like conspire this plan of like, okay, if I go out this room, there's definitely like police officers there. So like, they're going to find the key in my pocket. So what I got to do is I got to take my shoelace out of my spare pair of shoes and I got to tie a shoelace around my dick onto the key and wrap it around my dick. And then I can walk out and like, they'll search me, but they won't find the key. But by the time I got the fucking key wrapped around my dick and I was walking out, like I had to take another shot of cocaine. Cause now I was coming down. It would take me like three, four hours to get out. Then I would forget where I put the bag of cocaine and I would get outside, I would finally get the drink, and then I wouldn't even take a sip out of it because I was just, all I was consumed with was shooting cocaine. I remember some guys tried to come to do a 12-step on me. Uh, we, you actually know one of the guys. I won't say his name on here, but I scared the fucking life out of them. Like, they knocked on the door, <laughs> and they came in that room, and I was like, yo, you guys ain't fucking leaving. <laughs> they were like, what? I was like, nobody's leaving this room. <laughs> till I get done what I need to do. And then we'll talk about treatment. They were like, Mike, can you, okay, bro. Like they were just petrified. And I, I must've looked like a, like a maniac. Mm-hmm. You know, I, then I found myself down in places like Overtown. You know, I was down in Overtown buying heroin to come down and making that trek back and forth. And Overtown was the, was the worst place I ever saw. How would you describe like the difference between like Overtown and like using like in like the boroughs of New York? So in New York, right? Don't matter what skin color you are, right? You could go into like the the most gangster neighborhood, right? And if you look like me, they're gonna you know like if they're gonna treat you really well because you're paying because you're their fucking spending money. Yeah, you're their you're their income. Mm-hmm. And like in Overtown, you're the same thing except. The first time you go down there to buy, they just like to put a gun to your head. <laughs> like for $20. Like here, I'm, I'm going to shoot you in the head for this $20 instead of making 20 grand off of you this month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I remember the time I went down there trying to uh, pawn a piece of jewelry. And it, there is no pawn shop. I mean, I was trying to pawn the jewelry at the only uh, economy in Overtown, which is the two stores, the two bodegas. That's all they have. Like everything that's traded in Overtown goes down to the <laughs> bodega. So I'm trying to trade a fucking piece of gold at a bodega. 
I remember the guy that owned the store was, was an Arab, but he was not like any Arab I'd ever seen before because when he started to get loud with me, I saw that he had gold teeth, like all gold teeth. And he was like, yo, whoever fucking beats the fuck out of this white boy, I got him on uh, $20. <laughs> and next thing I know, like these crackheads started popping out of like the fucking, looked like in Batman uh, Forever, like when they go in that wrong neighborhood with Robin and shit. And I was like, like the glow stick started coming out. And so I had to like knock out some fucking crackhead, like just to go back and I was like, so do you want to buy it? Or like, cause I got to go. And that was, it was insane. Yeah, Overtown is, is where I saw, like, the, the worst in people. I would describe Overtown as, like, a third-world country. You know, it was uh, 3 in the morning the first time I went in there. and Yeah, and there are, like, Haitians in Overtown that are, like, just here from Haiti, like, do not speak any English at all. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it's it's totally different over there. I've heard horror stories from, from clients, like, people come down here to treatment and think that they're going to, go use an overtime like it's gonna be like some fun parade and no i don't advise people um, get kid down kidnapped here. i've heard multiple stories of girls getting kidnapped and t yeah. held up in hotel rooms for weeks at a time and you know horrific things happening to them and yeah and, and in like 2012 though that that was like the only place to buy to buy heroin mm -hmm. now now it's everywhere like like mm -hmm. happened in new york but yeah it was the, that was the first place i ever saw a guy standing in the middle of the street at four in the morning with a tank top on and a Glock, like in his in his uh, gym shorts mm -hmm. band, selling crack with an ankle monitor on. I was like, <laughs> I was like, where the fuck am I? Like, what is going on right now? I got pretty desperate, you know, as my as my addiction went on. And yeah, I remember hearing stories of like of you because so <laughs> <laughs> about me. Yeah, I remember people because when you got clean, I only knew you clean. Yeah. So I was like, oh, yeah, you know, Kev, whatever. People would be like, oh, man. Stay man, away from him. Well, people would be like, wow, it's like so amazing that he's clean. Like people were really impressed that you were clean. And to me, like, you know, you never really talked about using when we first met or whatever, you know. Right. And I remember someone being like, yeah, I remember this one time. He was just begging for a scholarship and he had like this bandage over his neck. And he had just got stabbed. And I was just like, what? Really? Kev? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got stabbed in the back of the neck down there. Like and, a uh, screwdriver? Yeah, it uh, yeah, I think so. A screwdriver. The story goes is I was sitting in my car down there shooting cocaine for a couple days straight. And there was that, there's a couple little buildings there. They're like uh, four unit apartment buildings. And they were, the kid would come down from the apartment building. I was sitting there and very observant because I was shooting cocaine, like all my senses. And I was yeah. hyper focused. And I watched this kid just keep coming down this building and he kept grabbing uh, something out of the drain hitch and I would see people pull up and he would serve them. You know, he was selling them dope. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, about an hour after I had run out of cocaine, I just couldn't take it anymore. I was sitting in that car, like coming down really, really bad. I just kind of like waited for it to get dark and walked over to that drain drain hitch or whatever it was on the building and pulled out this like Ziploc bag and there was like uh, 13 sleeves of heroin. There was a, there was a lot of, lot of heroin in mm -hmm. there. And I started running like Forrest Gump, bro. <laughs> I, I mean, I ran so fast and so far and I, you know, I, I did all the heroin and sold, traded some of it for money and, and got more Coke. And like a few weeks later, I was back down there and someone must've seen me or whatever, because I just remember just getting hit from behind and some guy was trying to kill me and you know, I was luckily able to fight him off or whatever, and I just left. And 
you know, asked for some, asked for some more help and went, went to, uh, went to another treatment center when they, and they did scholarship me except, uh, I was, you know, like, well, maybe you don't, but I can remember being so caught up in, in active addiction that there was times when I was in treatment, I just had to leave to go get high. And that was one of those times, like I could just could not get rid of the obsession to use. And I would be out there wherever I was, New York, Florida, I got high in uh, Jersey and, and Baltimore, Maryland one time. I was praying that the next shot would kill me because I had been to like 26, 27 treatment centers at this point. Mm-hmm. Like you said, everybody knew me, and I was just like the fuck up. I would go to meetings, and people wouldn't call on me. Nobody would answer the phone for me. Still, like, just like I was back in the day, like, not really willing to take a look at my role or responsibility in anything. Like, you know, I'd be, like, shooting cocaine or shooting heroin and wondering, like, why, like, I didn't have success in life and why, like, I didn't have, like, reliable friends. And And why why, everyone hates me. Yeah, Yeah. why everyone hates me and, like— I was just a burden on people's lives. Yeah, and, like, that's why I kind of believe in, like, lockdown facilities because, like, I went to a detox that had, like, you know, when I saw that the windows had, like, the mesh, uh, like, fencing inside of it and that there was, like, four, like, locked doors to even get to the second floor, I kind of felt safe there because I knew I couldn't leave. Like, it, it's kind of hard to get clean knowing you could just walk over the fence and go cop right it takes like a lot of surrender and that's why we kind of suggested people to move out their state because it makes it that much harder to leave and go and use you know but yeah the only problem for me with that and i totally agree with that because the first couple times i went to treatment down here was fantastic but after i learned to lay the land a little bit it was no fucking different for me of course you know um and and so i kind of fucked that up for myself you have a question? No, I was just going to say, so, like, you know, you go to all these treatment centers, you got stabbed. Like, how old are you at this point? I'm 27. I'm 27 at that point because, like I said, I had no more insurance. I lost my insurance at 26. You know, at that point, I had been down here, like, four years, and I decided to just pack up what little stuff I had, and a friend's mom bought me a plane ticket back to New York, and my sister found me a, found me a room to rent from this guy she knew in Alcoholics Anonymous and I, I went back to New York and I just like kicked heroin and and I started going to AA meetings and you know it was one thing down here because like not a lot of people like knew me and everything and I'd have to see people I grew up with but like when I moved back to Long Island at 27 years old I really felt like a loser like I really did you know I was like working at a pizzeria like making like $10 an hour and I was going to AA meetings and I had like a 2003 Acura TL and like it wasn't even correctly registered because I just couldn't afford anything. Mm-hmm. I was so poor. Like I, my family, I didn't have anything. And like like real poverty, like trying to get back on my feet. Like no one would take a shot on me. No one would help me. And I didn't blame them, you know? And I, but I, I got by and like I started to rebuild my life and, you know, I got to 60 days clean and 90 days clean. I was going to this this 6:30 a.m. meeting in Long Island every morning. And it was uh it was a good meeting. There was there was a different different crew of class of people at a 6:30 a.m. meeting. Yeah. Then you see at like the eight o'clock meeting on a Friday night. It was mm-hmm. like a bunch of like professionals, Wall Street people and um people with families, and this was like the time where they could get a meeting in. Mm-hmm. And I went there every day and I went to the gym. I was, now people ever tell you about my anger back in the day or I was a very angry. I think I see it now. <laughs> I was a very angry 27 year old young man. Oh, you know who told me the story is, is Craig. Craig? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, oh yeah, Craig. Yeah, Craig was in sober living with me. I was like 25, 26. I almost had to beat the brakes off of him. <laughs> fucking wouldn't give me a cigarette. I was like, what? Anyway, at tw yeah, 27, um, like being in that position in life, uh, I was just like very angry. And so, you know, I'm smart enough to know I just can't go around like beating people up and starting fights and things like that. So I took out like a lot of my aggression and things like that in the gym. And so for six months, I went to the gym every day for three hours. And I was working at the pizzeria, and so I ate as much food as I can. I started to become this, like, you know, just, like, bodybuilding all the time. And I got my hair cut, and I was trying to get whatever, bang whatever girls I could. You know, I, I, I just just fixing the outside, like I had done the whole time. Like, the problem was never the outside, but that mm -hmm. was always the way I viewed the problem. Yeah, whenever I see, like, a young kid get clean, and he just, like, really runs into the gym, like... I really try to like steer them into like using that energy into like their step work and recovery yeah. because uh, you, it just looks so sick from the outside looking in because I'm like, dude, you just got clean and now like you're just drinking four protein shakes a day, like thinking like yeah, you just got to make a sh a really it, it doesn't really require a whole lot, but you you got to take that time in the beginning to make that investment in in the spiritual part of the program and and doing the work. Mm -hmm. And it, then all that other stuff falls into place, you know, but I, I've seen a million people, kids like that. Yeah. A thou and like, you could see it off rip. The first thing they do is like <laughs> meal prepping, meal and treatment. prepping and treatment, trying to screw all the girls. They're like begging their mom for money for tattoos, you know, like, you know, they finance a chain or something, buying all the sneakers. Everyone will do that eventually uh, to some degree, but like you really, it would be more challenging to not do that stuff. And learn to be okay without that stuff. Because if you don't learn to do that, you're going to acquire all these things. And then the girl's going to break up with you and you're going to use. You're going to acquire all these things and you're going to get the sickest body ever. And then you're still going to be depressed and then probably use. Like, you need to have that foundation of, like, absolutely self-esteem that comes from doing esteemable things, not lifting weights. Yeah, absolutely. And I always, like, dislike that kid a lot. Like, that kid that does that and stuff. <laughs> and I'm always like, look at this fucking punk. And it's because it's me. It was yeah. me. Like, I always, like, when I dislike someone, I always see, it's always because of so much of me was in there. And so, just like we were talking about, like, I did the same thing as those kids. And I, I dressed up the outside for six months. And one night, I, uh, you know, I just said, I'm just going to get one 20 bag of cocaine. And next thing I knew, I had shot a quarter ounce of cocaine. And it was like five in the morning. The clock was rolling around to the morning time. And like the guy I lived with was like in AA. So I had to get out of the house because it was going to be the first morning. I was not myself and he was going to see me. And so I jumped in my car. Well, first I drank, uh, I drank like a fifth of vodka. I got in my car and it had been a really long time since I had done heroin in New York, but I decided that maybe this heroin dealer still had the same phone number. So I pulled up my Verizon phone bill from like 2009. Wow. And I called this kid and I was like, yo. And he's like, yeah, Kev. I'm like, yeah, what's up? Uh, are you still like, you know, Serving? are you good? <laughs> are you good, bro? Like I said, you're a loser. Like, I should have been like, are you still selling heroin or not? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, man, come by. And I was like, all right. I drove over there and this kid always sold dope, like right out the front window of his house. Like he would pop his window, stick his head out and give you like two bundles of heroin. And mm -hmm. I always thought like years ago, like this kid's going to get fucking nailed. Like, like, it's not my problem, you know, like whatever. And years went by, he's totally still doing the same thing, right? I get there, I, I, he gives me the two bundles of heroin, I leave. And uh, 
I got my syringes in the car, but I'm going to, I'm going to leave the neighborhood. I, I make two rights and I just hear whoop whoop. And the cop, like from the time I put it in park, he was at my window. He's like, roll down the window, roll down the window, roll down the window. I roll down the window. He's like, where's the shit? Where is it? Get out of the car. And I'm like, I, I knew that he had hit me. And as he says, get out of the car, that fifth of vodka hits me. And I'm like, oh my God. Like the come down from cocaine had subsided <laughs> and now I'm in the drunk phase. And I'm just trying to stay away from this cop. So I never got a DUI. Like getting possession of heroin in New York, at least back then, it was like a pretty simple misdemeanor, you know? It was no different than getting a possession of, of marijuana. Mm -hmm. So it was going to be wham, bam, and you were going to be out of there. But a DUI was like being a fucking pedophile. Like they were going <laughs> to slay you yeah. for getting a DWI. So I was trying to stay away from it. He's like, where is it? Don't make any sudden moves. You're a big guy. I'm like, listen, it's in my pocket. He's like, is there any needles? I'm like, no, they're in the duffel bag on the floor. And he put me in handcuffs and he's like, go sit, go sit on the grass there. I sat on the grass and I've been arrested enough to know that like when they catch you with heroin, despite that not being a big charge, like there's going to be more than one cop coming. And I'm sitting there for like 15, 20 minutes and I'm noticing that like no other cops are there or coming. And so I had given, uh, he had found my brother as a police officer. He found my brother's PBA card in his car. And uh, he said to me, uh, he comes over, he's like, hey, listen, I'm going to give you three choices. Option number one, I'll take you back to the precinct. Uh, the narcotics team will interview you and you'll probably become a confidential informant. Option number two, you take you back to the precinct. You can bail yourself out um, and we'll charge you regularly. He goes, or uh, option number three, I can call your brother. So I said, just arrest me regularly. And uh, he goes, no, fuck you. I'm calling your brother. And uh, he fucking made me take out my phone you know, he looked for my brother's name in the phone. He took my phone, he went in his car, and he shut the door. And like 15 minutes later, wow. he got out of the car and he called me to the back of my car. And he said, turn around. And I said, okay. I turned around and he took the cuffs off me. And he looked at me and he said, I just heard the saddest story I've ever heard in my life. He goes, your brother's a really good guy. He told me to arrest you. He said, you don't need any favors. He said, but I wouldn't want somebody arresting my brother who had a problem like this. He said, so I don't know if you need to go to a church. I don't know if you need to go to a rehab. I don't know if you need to call your sponsor. He goes, but you're going to get in your car and you're going to get the fuck out of here right now. And I had two bundles of heroin. I had 20 bags of heroin. And you know, I put on like this theatrical performance, like, yeah, I'm going to change my life. Thank you, officer. Thank you so much. And I got in my car and I drove directly to South Jamaica, Queens. And, and, I, and I just parked my car in like a no parking area and I just started shooting heroin around the clock. I said, I'm gonna fucking kill myself. This is this is over now. And after like two weeks like of just watching my car just get pounded, I mean smashed with parking tickets by the New York City, <laughs> I just couldn't stop shooting heroin. I say to myself, I gotta go get like an oil change and go into a detox so that I can bring my tolerance down, I can kill myself. And uh, I go into this detox and I've been in like these nice detoxes and stuff in Florida. I haven't been in like a New York City detox in, in a, a long, long time. time. <laughs> and they give me methadone. That's why I chose that detox. And I wake up the next morning in like middle afternoon, it's lunchtime and they hand me a tray and it's a, a little uh, cup of apple juice and a seafood salad sandwich. And my roommate was this, this guy, he had like three teeth. And I mean, you know, you get like one little, like a sun cup it's called, you ever seen those? You know, mm -hmm. like for like toddlers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's like three <laughs> ounces of juice. We're fucking detoxing from heroin here. Can you fucking give us a, something a little more than this? You know? And the dude was like, 
sitting across from me, he's eating this seafood salad sandwich. I mean, he's inhaling it like we're at fucking Ruth Chris or something. Like he's just seafood salads going everywhere. And he's like, yo, you gonna, you gonna, you gonna uh, drink that juice? <laughs> I'm like looking at him. And as he's saying that, like this, this Latin King guy is walking up and down. He was like this gang member, like this Spanish dude. I met him in the cigarette room before that. It was a hospital. You could smoke in the hospital. Mm -hmm. It's bizarre. And he was like, yo, I can get the best dope in the Bronx. I got to get my shit. I got to get out of here. I can get the best dope in the Bronx. And I was like, yo, Omar, you can get the best dope in the Bronx. He's like, hell yeah, white boy. I was like, let's go. And me and Omar, we did what's called the AMA. We left this detox against medical advice. They got us out of this detox in like probably like 13 seconds. They were like, yeah. oh, you two want to leave? Get the get fuck the out. Fuck out. Yeah. yeah. And next That's thing That's the I difference between like private centers. Like people are always like, oh, private centers making money off you. Da, da, da. I'm like, bro, have you been to a county place? Yeah, they were like, yo. If you, you complain about the food, they're like, oh, you don't want to be here? Get out. Yeah, dude, they had us out of there so fast. And we, we were happy. Yeah. Because- Next thing I know, uh, we're, we're on this train going up to the Bronx, and, and uh, Omar's like, yo, Kev. He's like, not only can I get fire, dope, and coke, he's like, but I got a place for us to stay, too. And I was like, damn, it's like fucking Christmas up in this motherfucker, you know? Like this, I haven't had a place to stay in like three weeks, you know? And so I'm picturing like Omar's mom's going to be making like chicken and rice and shit. We're going to be shooting dope or whatever. And it was not the case, man. Like, we got up there, Omar could get fire dope, and he could get fire cocaine, but me and Omar lived on the 14th floor stairwell of uh, the Millbrook Projects for, like, the next 90 days. And this is, like, when I started to have, like, the lowest moment of my life is, um, you know, like, when I was first, like, started, like, smoking weed, and my parents were, like, telling me, like, I couldn't smoke weed, and I just thought I had strict parents. And then, like, when I was using cocaine, I just thought that, like, I was, and my parents sent me to rehab, I just thought that I got caught. And then, like, when I was, you start, first started using heroin, like, Nobody really knew what I was doing at first because they were used to me being up all hours of the night. Now yeah, I was sleeping sleepy, all the time yeah, and they thought, okay, this kid's just depressed. You know, everybody's parents always want to blame mental health mm -hmm. and stuff. And then like when I was living in the train station, I was still so young that like it didn't really matter. And like I still had hope that like I would bounce back and things like that. And then when I was down here, like I knew people that were in recovery. I knew people that had like run around the streets and gotten well. But then like I didn't get clean during that phase. But like when I was on this fucking stairwell, with this Latin King guy. And he used to carry a CD around with him, bro. And, and it was like 2016 and, you know, people- <laughs> No one had CDs. Nobody was using CDs anymore, but he would use the CD as a mirror as he would inject uh, heroin and cocaine into the last vein that he had left in his body, which was his neck. When I was watching this guy, Omar, shooting heroin and cocaine into his neck, I could no longer say to myself that like things were gonna be okay. Yeah, and like there's a point in your addiction where like, it's no longer, oh, it's my dad's fault. Oh, it's this person. Oh, it's that. Like, th there becomes the point where it's like, it's you. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, like, and it was over, bro. Yeah. It was fucking over. And I remember looking at him and I just said that, that, that foxhole kind of prayer, which was unusual for me because I still had drugs and I still had money. I usually say that foxhole prayer later on. But I just said, God, please get me out of here. And like, bro, like an hour or so later, like, friend of mine that was like sober you know he called me and he, he asked me where i was and he came and got me and next thing i know like 24 hours later you know uh he had gotten me a scholarship to treatment like i'm like on my way to treatment in uh in florida again on a scholarship and uh this would be my 29th treatment center 
Yeah, and just so people listen, like this never happens. Like I, you can call a thousand <laughs> people a thousand days out of the year, and the chances of someone scholarshiping you one time is so rare. The scholar the the chance of it happening a couple of times is like it doesn't happen to too many people. You really got to know somebody, somebody yeah. for them to really be like, all right, we're gonna help you out again. Yeah. So the clincher was though. And I really understood the treatment industry pretty, had a pretty good understanding at this point, but I just wasn't thinking. The clincher was, is that this was just a rehab. There was no medical detox. No detox, yeah. So I went in there kicking like Bruce Lee and I was, I was so miserable because when you're younger, you know, you kick quickly, you bounce back. This would be like, this would be like my 500th, 600th time kicking dope, whether through a treatment center or just a detox or home or jail. Like I had done this plenty of times and each time it had gotten harder and I was so miserable, bro. I mean, I was so miserable. Like I wanted to, I wanted to kill myself. I couldn't believe I was back in treatment. I regretted going right away. And this woman like with a name tag just made a beeline for me like as I was smoking the cigarette that I didn't even want to smoke because that's how sick I was. She was like, hey, are you Kevin from New York? I'm like, yeah. She's like, my name's Crystal. I'm going to be your therapist. Let's go have a session. I was like, no, thanks. <laughs> you know, she's like, well, we got to do your biopsychosocial. I'm like, all right. We go in there. I give her one word answers. And she's like, hey, who are we going to put down as your emergency contact? You didn't fill it out on the intake. And I was like, uh, I don't know. She's like, well, mom. And I was like, no, my mom doesn't want any more calls from treatment centers. She's like, dad? I'm like, I haven't talked to my dad in like six years. She's like, brother? Like, my brother just had a baby. He told me he was pretty much done with me right before I came here. Sister? I'm like, my sister just had a baby and, you know, like, I don't want to bother. I didn't have like the most simple thing, like an emergency contact. I, I didn't have anybody. I, had, I hadn't burned bridges. Like I had fucking hit him with nuclear warheads. Mm. There was nothing left. And this is where my life really changed because and in every treatment center I had been in, they had given me assignments. And I was always the guy that was like too smart for my own good, would overanalyze things. Like when I meet somebody that's like, when someone asks me for help and I can tell they have like a low intelligence level, their parents are always like, well, what do you think? I'm like, he's going to get sober. <laughs> and they're like, why? I'm like, I've been doing this a long time. Yeah. He just is. And then I end up looking like a genius. But the truth is, is that I know that this person from an intellectual standpoint is a fucking idiot. And so like when someone says, go do A, B, and C, they go do A, B, and C, and then they look at you and go, should I go to D? <laughs> Me, they're like, yo, go do A, B, and C. And I'm like, fuck you. No. Mm -hmm. Why would I go to A? Number one's over there. Mm-hmm. And so I could just go straight to D right now. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? I'm fucking, I'm benching 315. I'm at D right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm at D. Fucking girls. I just are, got a haircut. Yeah, bro. I just got a haircut, man. Like, I got a you job. You got five years clean. You're working over here. Can I got you? a job on Las Olas. We're eating tables. I'm going straight to halfway. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so she, everybody that had given us the assignment, A, which was write your life story. And um, just out of fucking frustration. It was like the first treatment center I'd been in that had a smart TV mm -hmm. that had like YouTube. I couldn't sleep. And, um, well, actually, I'm forgetting the previous point of that. So they, we had this assignment, write your life story. And this kid in my caseload group, which is everyone that had the same therapist, we would meet together like on Mondays and Wednesdays or whatever for a couple hours. Um, he was getting ready to finish treatment. And she said, John, you're getting ready to finish treatment. Have you written your life story? And he said, yeah, I have. 
She goes, well, would you read it for the group? And he said, absolutely, I will. And John stood up. He said, my name is John. I'm from Philly. You know, the Philadelphia kids, they always say Philly. <laughs> I'm like this fucking loser. He's like, I'm from Philly, and this is my fourth treatment center, and I'm a heroin addict. And he sat down. And I looked around the room, and I was like, what did this kid drop out of school when he was like seven? <laughs> like, what the fuck kind of life story was that, you know? And nobody said anything. Because you know how it is, bro. Everybody's too cool for school and treatment. Yeah. But, like, the difference for me was, like, the first treatment center I was in, I was the youngest. And here I was. I was 28, bro, and I was the oldest. I was the oldest kid in the treatment center. I remember people were like, dude, what do you eat? Like, will you work out? And I'm like, bro, I'm fucking 28 years old. Like, you know, they're like, you, I can look mean. I'm like, yeah. You know, I just don't talk to me. <laughs> and, uh, and I like went back to the residence that night and I couldn't stop thinking about this kid's life story. And it just kind of hit me like, I was like, man, you know what? Drugs had done to him the same thing they do to everybody. Like he had completely forgotten about who he really was or who, like, who he was raised as uh, to be and like his family. and everything. Like his highest thought of himself was that he was John from Philly and that he was a heroin addict. I, out of frustration, I went in, like we had the smart TV with the, that had a connection to YouTube and I just typed in like motivational speaker. And I think Eric Thomas came on with like some like mixing of like Rocky yeah. and like sick background music. <laughs> and You sent me a couple of them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was, you know, like when you're, when you're first getting clean, you have that ability to like really tap into like that raw, true emotion. It feels like getting born again. Yeah. It feels like, a, like being born. Mm -hmm. especially when you have no suboxone and you're just raw like i was just kicking raw and um it's like the first experience of hope for the first time in a long time and i put it on and i just was listening to him speak and i just started writing man and that kid wrote like four sentences and i wrote like 47 pages and it was weird because like as you know like by nature and a lot of people that know me, like, I'm a pessimist. Like, I'm extremely negative. I can be negative. I've gotten better with it. But, like, I used to be super negative about everything. And But when I write, people, and that's why people always say, like, you're so inspirational. <laughs> it's weird, right? But yeah. I write in a very positive manner. And so I wrote, like, 46 pages or something like that. And I came into the group the next morning, and she said, well, we don't really have much to talk about because, you know, there's so many new people here. But does anybody have their life story? And I looked up and I said, I do. And I mean, her jaw hit the floor because I was like, you know, she knew that I was like a treatment savvy, treatment hopper. Fuck this. I fuck know everything. Up. Yeah. And she's like, would you read it? And I was like, yeah. And I just, the first time in my life, bro, that I didn't try to like, it's the first time I did something for me. Mm -hmm. And I just stood up and I, I started reading it and I, I read through the whole thing. It took me like a half an hour. And I looked around the room when I finished and everybody was crying and they were applauding me and people were like, oh my God, that was amazing. Are you, are you like a writer and stuff? And two things happened to me in that moment that changed my life is the first one is that I really liked being complimented. Like I hadn't gotten a compliment in over a decade. And the second thing was I realized that I could really like impact the behavior of like this group of people that nobody could seem to figure out, mm -hmm. drug addicts. And I realized that like when I behaved a certain way, other people behaved that way. So like if I wanted to turn the place into like Attica, 
<laughs> I could turn it into Attica. But if I wanted to turn it into like AA and, and the spiritual place and like have people like open up, I was going to have to be a leader. And so what really happened was I stopped being a follower and I, I learned to be a leader. And my therapist, she took me back to her office and she was like, Kevin, why do you use drugs? It sounds like a really like simple question, you know, but I had never been asked it before. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm a fucking junkie. I'm a heroin addict. I'm addicted to the needle. It's all I know. She's like, no, no, no. Why do you use drugs? Give me, give me your answer. Why do you use drugs? I'm like, I just told you. I don't know. And I'm starting to get frustrated. I'm starting to get angry. And she said, no, no, no. I'm looking at a blonde hair, blue eyed, six foot three, handsome, intelligent, charming young man. She said, but you don't see any of that. She said, and you get high because you hate yourself. And it was like, bro, like a fucking light bulb went on in my head. Because I was tired of living on the street. I was tired of letting people down. I was tired of getting fired from jobs. I was tired of watching people pass me by. I was tired of not achieving anything. I was tired of not seeing my family. And I wanted a fucking solution, like really fucking bad. And so like what I used to do is I would always give up before like it happened. Mm -hmm. Because I figured if I don't try hard enough, I can't say it didn't work. And I would always give up. And the solution just hit me when she said that. I said, I guess I got to figure out how to like myself if I want to stay clean. Because my problem is that I hate myself, huh? And she said, no, Kevin Alter, you got to figure out how to love yourself or you're not going to see 30 years old. Hmm. Are you prepared for your mom to have to bury you? And, you know, I'm very close with my mom throughout all my addiction. You know, she was always my, my first one to support me or... You know, if I was in a treatment center, she would take my call or send me a card. She couldn't let me live with her and buy me cars and shit like these other kids' moms do. But, you know, she, she showed me that she loved me and things like that. And, um, and man, I like I, from there on out, like I just became about like loving myself, you know, figuring out how to, how to do that. So the first thing for me right then, right then and there was no matter what, I was going to finish treatment. You know, and I got out of treatment after 30 days and, I had that feeling of like something was different and then I was going to be like, I had a real shot. And I think for me, it was the perfect combination to get my fucking ass kicked on the street, really good therapy and age. You know, mm -hmm. it was a good age for me to get, for me, for this drug addict to get sober 28. And, uh, and I, I mean, I was at the bottom, bro. Like I had, I didn't have really much clothing I didn't even have a cell phone. I certainly didn't have a place to live. And I had no, no job resume, nobody looking to hire me. And, <laughs> you know, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't even put that I had worked at these other places on, on job applications because everywhere I worked, I got fired for substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Everywhere, bro. I either got sent away to rehab too many times or got caught nodding out or, you know, everybody, it was no secret that I was a junkie. And I just started plugging away, bro. I got a job at a restaurant when I first got sober. After three months, I uh, had enough money for my own place. Well, I stayed with my friend. I stayed with my friend that sent me to treatment. You know, he helped me out for sure, mm -hmm. like big time. And he didn't have to. You know, he helped me out. He let me stay on his couch and he helped me get on my feet. And um, I'm forever grateful for that. And after like three months, you know, I went and uh, I got my first apartment. And it was like a furnished, illegal apartment. Uh, you know, like they're not allowed to rent part of their house kind yeah. of thing. And uh, I looked around like when I got the keys from the landlord and everybody left. And I was so proud of myself, bro. I hadn't had my own bedroom, my own dresser, 
my own bathroom, my own refrigerator in over 10 years. Like everywhere I lived was a halfway house or a rehab or homeless. Mm -hmm. And like I turned on Sports Center, like the TV, and like everybody in the NFL was like completely different than like the last time, <laughs> like the last time I had watched the game. <laughs> these people? I was like, I was like, yeah, where's Amon Green? Like he was on the cover of Madden, like, and they're like, he's fucking retired, bro. I <laughs> <You> mean, <laughs> he's been out of the league like seven years. And, uh, you know, I, I sat there and I was like really, really proud and happy for myself. And, you know, my, my mom had, and my dad, they had invited me to, to Christmas. Mm -hmm. You know, it was coming up, it was probably like November, I think. Christmas was coming up. And they said to me, you know, hey, why don't you come spend Christmas with us? And that was very important to me because I hadn't done that in a long time. Yeah, I still remember my first Christmas clean. Yeah. But the problem was is that um, I looked around the room after like 30 minutes and that voice, um, the disease of addiction, our voice, which talks to us in our own thoughts and mind and started talking to me. I was like, yo, just go, just call Booby. Just get one bag. Just see if he's got the same number. Just go drive out there. Just see if they're hanging out out there. You could do one bag. Look at you, bro. You got an apartment in New York. You have squatters rights. You know how hard it's going to be for them to get you out of here? We'll barricade that fucking door shut. Nobody's coming in here. We'll only leave to get drugs. Just get one. Just call him, call him, call him, call him, call him. And I just like stopped for a second. I thought about it. And I was, I had overdosed, you know, eight times in my addiction. I had been homeless for years and years. I had lost everything. And, you know, my family didn't want nothing to do with me. And I just thought for a minute, like, you know, I know what's going to happen if I use, but like, I don't know what will happen if I stay clean. And I just said to myself that I was going to give it one year. I was going to give it one year. I had never hit that year mark. All the times I had gone to treatment, I never hit a year clean, and I had remembered reading something about a heroin addict's brain or a drug addict's brain, how it takes truly takes like one year to get clean. And like parents are always like, oh, I wish treatment centers would be longer than 30 days. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, so do we, <laughs> you know? But the truth is, is that we don't really dictate the time, you know, and we try to get people as much time as we can for them in treatment centers and things yeah, like and that. Yeah, and it's really up to the insurance company, and they're fighting you every day to get people out the door. Right, know? right. I also think that like one year of treatment or really anything longer than 60 days inpatient is too much. It yeah. starts to become adverse. No, at some point, the rubber's got to hit the road. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like You can only talk about working out so much <laughs> before you got to lift, lift the fucking weight, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, um, but I, I just, I went with that thought. I got through that moment. And I just said to myself, I mean, it was bad. Like, like my parents would always like, they, they didn't even think I was going to get clean. Like nobody thought I was going to get clean, including me or stay clean. I mm -hmm. could get clean. You know, I could get clean. I couldn't stay clean. Yeah. That first Christmas, I remember it was Christmas Eve. My mom always had a big Christmas Eve party. I woke up like, so, you know, like just like when you're excited about something, you can't sleep. I went to bed at regular time, but I woke up at like 4.30 and I just started driving to my mom's house. And uh, I had tears like streaming down my face. I was so happy and proud of myself. And life just kept improving. You know, it just kept getting better. And uh, you know, a few months after that, I met my sponsor and I sat down with with uh with another man and i i, I did the 12 steps and and that's the first time you ever did that huh 
It was the first time I did all 12. It was the first time I did, uh, I did them thorough like that, the fourth step. And he helped me. Like For those of you that haven't worked a fourth step yet or, and a fifth step, I, I, people scared me about it too. But at, at the time I did it, I, was, I just stopped caring about people judging me anyway. So mm-hmm. I went and did it. But it's not like that at all. Like For me, the fourth step and the fifth step made it very clear that I was the cause of all my own problems. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there was no more blaming other people. And I saw my role in things and my pattern and things. And it's, it's, it's a very humbling feeling and displeasing moment to realize that everything that's happened to you is your fault. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's also a lot of power in that because if you change. Well, yeah, the power is that if it's your fault, then it's also your you that can change it because if yes. it's you that fucked it up yes well there's good news is you can also you can change yeah. yeah and that was like you said that was the first time that i that i did that and it, i would recommend it to anybody it was it was life-changing for me it was you know i love my sponsors i've had the same sponsor my entire recovery mm-hmm. um i just talked to him the other day we don't we don't speak every day but i talked to him the other day for like 25 minutes and just the sound of his voice is uh it's calming to me, mm-hmm. you know, just hearing, like, I could tell him anything. Um, and when it comes to knowledge of the book and, and, and the program, he's second to none. But for me and him, and, and this does not have to be, and this is not the way it's supposed to be, but for me, he's, you know, he's been at times to me like a father figure and, and, uh, and just like someone that I look up to and can trust with, with anything. You know, I could call him up and, and tell him anything, and I know mm-hmm. that. He's going to not only give me the best advice, but he's not going to call up, say you, and be like, yo, bro, guess what Kev said? Yeah. <laughs> like, yo, listen to what this crazy motherfucker <laughs> just said. And uh, and that's priceless to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And and there's like a lot of uh, loneliness that, that goes away because like we have friends and we have people that we talk to in recovery, but like your relationship with your sponsor is so deep. And when I hear like my sponsor just empathize with something that I'm thinking it makes me feel like that loneliness goes away. And like, for me, the worst part about using was just that utter loneliness that like, there is no one on the emergency contact. Like even other drug addicts don't want me around. Like other drug addicts tell me to get out the fucking car. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So it's like, you know, sometimes being clean, that loneliness starts to creep in and, you know, we're at family dinners and we feel like, yeah. (laughs) yeah, we don't even belong there, you know? And we're looking around, people our age are like, out to clubs and like buying houses and like I'm still staring at people's veins and like you know <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, I get, I get I'm still having drug dreams and like you know I'm still I still like dream about using and fantasize about using and you know I, I pull up to red lights and look at homeless people and kind of envy them you know <laughs> and um like this guy's got it pretty good he's got no worries nobody's bothering him yeah I'm like you know, people are like, yo, get this guy away from me. I'm like, oh, it doesn't look too bad. You know, because I was talking to uh, my attorney the other day and he's like, man, it must be really hard for you to be like, you know, totally sober. And oh, going the professionals to, like, are the best. Yeah, they don't, yeah. they think we're like fucking aliens. Well, he's like, you know, it must be really hard to not drink when you see people drinking and stuff. I don't know how you do it. I'm like, to be honest with you, when I pull up to a red light, because I know the difference between like a homeless person that has mental illness and a homeless person that's like on a run. Yeah. And I was like, bro, when I see that homeless person that's like getting it out there, like these people are copping every single day, every couple hours. All day. All day. It's harder for me to like look away from that person than it is to look away from like the girl having a drink at the bar. Right. Yeah, that, that, I used to, that's changed for me a little bit. I'm, you know, 
the longer I'm clean, the more the more I change and yeah, it starts to look insane now. Yeah, and I've also like my my circle of friends have changed. You know, we're going out tomorrow for my birthday, and like I I really have like a good group of friends now in mm -hmm. recovery. And uh, and it takes time, which I try to tell people. I'm like, bro, like I didn't wake up one day and have a whole bunch of friends. Yeah, you gotta be, you know, you gotta remain as tough as you were in addiction and recovery. People, people kind of get soft in recovery and sensitive, and it's because they don't have their drugs. I get it, but for me, I it took time. Yeah, it's it's incredibly accurate. And I have this this other friend now. You you know him as well, but he uh, he's been teaching me a lot about like walking through fear and stuff and. And things I want to do in my life, and he's always just like, well, "Bro, you know, just just lean into it. Mm. You know, just lean into it. Like this is your time. You got this." And he introduced me to this other guy, and you know, he's been kind of mentoring me on some things. And you know, I don't just have like one person. Mm -hmm. Like my sponsor is like the best person in the world if I need to talk about like the way I'm feeling about a relationship or like a question about like step work, and he can always bring it back to that. But like he's, you know, this isn't a knock on him. Like he's not the best person to talk to about like business issues mm -hmm. or like things that I, you know, like I have other people for that. Or like the other day I called you about something and, you know, you gave me great advice and I've learned to like not react to everything. And I've learned actually to see like when someone says something bad about me, for instance, it used to drive me crazy. Like I'm like, I'm going to fucking kill this guy, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Now I realize, like, when they do that, I'm like, damn, this person's, like, so miserable. Yeah, I think like, that I all feel the time, like, bad. damn, I'm so glad I'm not, like, walking around talking about other people. Because, like, you got to be a real loser to spend time gossiping about other people. Like, there's so many good things to say about people. Like, if you're just someone that just, like, points a out a room and says what you don't like about this person, what you don't like about that person, it's like, like, it makes me uncomfortable. I don't like to be around, like, negative, gossipy people. You yeah, know. it's in it's, it feels good when you're around someone. They're like, yo, you know what's really cool about this person? Oh, you know who's awesome? Like, it feels good when you hang around those types of people, yeah. you know? Yeah. And uh, when other people are just like negative, it just it makes me feel uncomfortable. And there was a time where I was like the most negative person, right. you know? And um, it's just like people that are just like miserable. And at the same time, it's like, bro, those people uh, uh, serve a need. You know what I mean? Like those. Like those people need to be around, so that way, like it makes you uh, grateful for the people that aren't like that, you right. know. Right. And like my mom used to always say, like Brian, they talked about Jesus. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? My mom used to say that to me, like Brian, they talked about. Your mom's Jesus. super religious, right? Super religious. Yeah, you know? I remember being like young and being like, Mom, they said this about me, and my mom would be like, Brian, you know what they used to say about Jesus? <laughs> Who the fuck are you? <laughs> yeah. You know? right. But um, yeah, man, I'm grateful to have you on the show, dude. You absolutely killed it. Um, happy birthday, bro. I'm excited to, you know, thank you, bro. have a dinner with thank you tomorrow. Thank you for having man. me. Love you, bro. Love you too, man. Thank you. Peace. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.